Isn't it funny how we all start off with a plan or conception of what our life and career will look like, but oftentimes we end up in a completely different place than we ever could have dreamed? Well, this is a podcast where we sit down with celebrities, athletes, and entrepreneurs to hear how they handled life's unexpected events. I'm your host, Andrew East. I'm an engineer turned professional athlete turned entrepreneur, and I'm super excited to bring you these stories to help inspire you to reach your dreams, no matter what they look like. I could be biased, but today's episode I'm thinking is going to be my favorite interview I've ever done and will ever do. And this is the 10th episode we've released, and I'm super excited to say that we're going to be sitting down with my beautiful wife, Sean Johnson, four-time Olympic medalist, serial entrepreneur, and just all-around beautiful woman. And she had some awesome words to say. I've, I've honestly never been more impressed by her. I tried to approach this interview as I have with every other interview, but you will realize that uh, we do interact as husband and wife sometimes. So hope you guys don't mind that. But if you guys want to connect with Sean, you can find her on social media at Sean Johnson. She also has her new fitness line at www.fitlife.com. That's F-Y-T life.com. And I hope you guys enjoy this one. Let's have some fun. Sean. I am super excited. This is a big day because this is the 10th episode of my new podcast. Yes. And I felt like there's no better way to celebrate that than to sit down with you. Everybody's been dying to listen to this interview. So here it is. We're celebrating it. And I appreciate you you know, sitting down with me. I know it took a lot of negotiating power on my end <laughs> to get you here. So thank you. I'm curious. Well, first, congratulations. Appreciate that. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> Thank you. Your podcast is amazing. Uh, but I'm curious, are you interviewing me as your wife? I'm going to try. First of all, this is not typically how we have conversations. So <laughs> <laughs> it's super weird right out of the gate. It's so weird. You, yeah, usually it's more of an argument style. Or, <laughs> okay. You're I'm blushing. Gonna, I'm going to try oh, to interview so you as if you're Sean Johnson. Okay. So okay. let's just get that out of the way. So audience listening, so this not, is my I'm wife. I'm not your wife right now. No, I want okay. you to answer okay. as if this is your normal okay. interviews type. Okay. Okay. No so pressure, So just keep bro. this in mind. This Bring is not it. a typical conversation that we have, audience. Um, <laughs> but usually, I start off and have no. The, don't say usually. The interviewee just, just do it. Right? Talk about their background okay. um, because the whole podcast is about um, us starting off our career trajectory on doing one thing and then getting redirected into another thing. I love it. As you. No, you're one of my most avid listeners. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so I just – I think it provides a lot of value to talk about your background. So you want to just kind of talk about where you grew up, what your family was like? Sure. Um, so um, my name is Sean Johnson. Mm-hmm. I'm from West Point, Iowa, where I was born and raised. I was a gymnast my entire life. I went to the 2008 Olympic Games in Beijing, China, where I won four Olympic medals, uh, one gold and three silver. I then went on to do Dancing with the Stars, where I won the coveted Mirrorball Trophy. Uh, I went on to do Dancing with the Stars All-Stars. I've been on The Apprentice. I've been on MTV's The Challenge. I've published multiple books. Mm-hmm. I own a company. I've even been on Whose Line Is It Anyway and Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. So I've done a lot. So what was your family situation like growing up? My family situation? Yeah. Uh, my family situation, this is so weird because you're my husband, you know all these answers. Um, <laughs> okay, business. Um, my family situation. I grew up in like small town Midwest. My parents are very blue collar, all American, 
um, grew up on a, like, almost out of a movie, like a little cul-de-sac where I grew up playing with my neighbors, and we would have cul-de-sac parties, and I don't know, just a very normal, average, Midwest American life. Your mom and dad do what? My mom and dad, my mom is an accountant. She's been an accountant her whole life, but for multiple companies and organizations. Right now, she's a accountant for an outpatient surgery center. And my dad has been a trim carpenter his whole life, ever since he was 16, when he married my mom. <laughs> they got married at 16. Um, but he's been a trim carpenter under his own business up until about two years ago when he left his own business with his brother and they just kind of like his brother retired he moved into um kind of more of a corporate carpentry residential building company and they're both very good at what they do shout out mama and papa jay uh can you tell the story i love the story of how they met yes um my parents met when they were 12 years old at a roller skating rink they were doing the you know everyone remembers well not the kids today, but everyone remembers the roller skating rings when you would play the, like, girls on one side, boys on the other, and then you would have to pick someone to, like, skate with. Well, they they met that way. I think my dad picked my mom. And they started dating when they were 12, which is weird to think about. I don't know kids could date when they were 12. And they got married at 16. Crazy. Wow. And then they had you when they were, like, 32. 30. That's right. Yep. So you were born in gymnastics. You typically start at a pretty young age, right? Yes. Gymnastics, you you usually start at like two and a half or two years old with like mommy and me classes or three years old. It's just like putting kids in swim lessons. It's just kind of like a recreational sport to teach kids mobility and function, um, functional, functional mobility yeah. <laughs> and coordination. And you loved it right away or... I, my parents put me in gymnastics because I was this little kid that had way too much energy. They would catch me climbing on top of the entertainment center and dive bombing off of it or climbing walls or, uh, I jumped off the playground at, at three years old and cracked my head open a few times and I just had all this like crazy energy. So they put me in dance to start and the dance teacher kept complaining to my parents that I wouldn't listen and I would be doing cartwheels while they told me to do plies and um so they switched me to a gymnastics gym that they called a padded playground and i fell in love with the trampoline and the rest was history i think i have a lot in common with your dance teacher just the whole you know <laughs> not having you listen hey <laughs> no <laughs> husband stuff here okay <laughs> i'm sorry i'm trying my best did you do any other sports so you did dance you did gymnastics i'm pretty sure you did other other sports too i'm right? pretty sure yeah um, should I quiz you? Um, I danced, I did gymnastics, I played soccer, I ran track, um, I swam, I tried softball at one point. I did a bunch of different sports throughout the years. I didn't weed out everything and just do gymnastics until my, like, freshman or sophomore year of high school. Wow. And your high school experience was way different than mine and the typical persons out there because, <laughs> A, usually gymnasts who are really high up get homeschooled yes but your experience was different because you were so young when you entered the olympics right uh yes and no my coach coach chow from des moines iowa who's originally from china um he had a different philosophy on gymnastics and raising olympic gymnasts <laughs> hi buddy <laughs> <laughs> 
Nash. We got Nash here joining us. Yeah. Everybody say what's up to Nash. He feels left out. Um, But my coach, his background, uh, he was raised, born and raised in China. He was a gymnast for China. And he was taken away from his family when he was three years old to be raised within the Chinese kind of sports system. And he ended up leaving China when he was about 22 years old, randomly came to Iowa under a scholarship of, with the University of Iowa to teach their gymnastics in exchange for learning English. Mm-hmm. After being there for a few years, he moved to Des Moines to open his own gym. And his dream with that gym was to raise Olympians that were also children and had a childhood and were able to be with their family and stay with their family and go to school and go to school dances and, you know, just be normal kids. So with me, when I, I was the first gymnast to ever walk in his doors when he he opened his gym, um, I just kind of took off with his program. And I continued to stay in public school where most elite athletes are, are homeschooled or go to private school. And so I ended up going all the way through high school as an Olympic athlete, and I just worked around it somehow. Was he your first coach? You were his first student. Was he your first coach? He was my second coach. So my parents actually put me in this gym called Urbandale Dance and Gymnastics, and it was like the only gymnastics gym within a 10-mile radius of my parents' home. And what are you doing? Nash needs his ball. (laughs) There we go. Um... Sorry, wife is coming out. Um, And then when my parents caught wind that this new gymnastics gym was being opened, they moved me to that gym to chow only because it saved them gas money. Mm. It had nothing to do with he was a better coach or they they wanted a more strict training regimen or whatever. It it just came down to gas money. So gymnastics, that's that's something I admire so much about your parents and parents in general is – the sacrifice that goes in. I mean, your dad was working midnight shifts, doing snow plows, just so he could pay for your gymnastics experience because it's not cheap, right? You have to pay for the monthly membership to the gym. And then your parents went to every single meet. Is that right? Every single meet. They never missed a single meet in my entire career. Including international meets, right? Including international. Which to me is I just think about my day and I come home from work and I'm like, okay, let me just you know turn on a movie or turn on a show mm-hmm. or read a book, whatever. Your dad's like, I have to go work my second job so I, so my daughter can do what she wants to do, which is inspiring to me yeah. as a man. Um, so, do my, you th- my daddy's the best. Yeah. Um, did you always – you knew right away that you wanted to do gymnastics full-time or you had like academic aspirations as mm-hmm. well? Um, I loved gymnastics. I mean, I think more than any other sport that I was in, but it never was this like – goal of mine to be an Olympian and to give up everything and sacrifice everything to become an Olympian. I just love gymnastics. I was a little kid that couldn't wait for school to end so I could go to gymnastics practice. And, you know, I would do dance on Mondays and gymnastics on Tuesdays, track on Wednesday, and I I couldn't wait for Tuesday. And, you know, as the years went on and as school became more demanding and I would move up in levels within dance or track or gymnastics, just time commitments kind of became more challenging. So I would have to weed things out by priority of just what I enjoyed. And my parents would always say, well, you know, track is starting to interfere interfere with gymnastics. What do you like better? And it was always gymnastics. Gymnastics just kind of stood. But within school, I was a school nerd. I love education. I loved school. 
almost as much as gymnastics, if not the same or more. Um, my dream was to be an orthopedic surgeon. I wanted to go to Stanford University, and I was going to end up back in Des Moines working as a surgeon. It, I, that was more so my dream than ever being, you know, a gymnast. It's interesting to me. We've actually never talked about this. Your, <laughs> really? your, your goal to go to Stanford University. Mm-hmm. Now that your parents graduated college, right? Correct. And you set this lofty goal of being an orthopedic surgeon. A lot of times, just naturally, we fall into um, setting goals that essentially look like what our parents do. Mm-hmm. What do you attribute your ability to like have this way different goal? Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Nash is going crazy. Uh, what do you attribute your ability to have these way different goals than what your parents did? Um, not saying any better or any worse, yeah. but way different. Um, I honestly would attribute it to my parents. Um, my parents, from the day I was born, took on this role and took on this mentality of, like, it doesn't matter what we do or how we do it. We encourage you to be your own person, to go for your own dreams. And they really just encouraged me and taught me that life is limitless. And there was nothing holding me back from doing literally anything in the world. Like, they made me feel superhuman as a child because, you know, I would talk about Stanford. And you're talking about probably one of the most expensive schools in the country, if not the world. And my parents didn't bat an eye. It was like, then Stanford it is. You're going to go to Stanford. Or I would switch it to Yale. Or I would switch it to Oxford in London. And every single time it was it was this celebration of, that is an amazing goal and you're going to achieve it. And because they didn't go to college, because, you know, they took a different path than I did, I think, I don't know, they, they were never ashamed of it. They are some of the most successful people from my perspective that I've ever been around. And it was just never a question that I had to follow in their footsteps. It was just following their mentality. I think that's a great point. And it's an important takeaway because, not to get super philosophical, I think success is more of a mindset than it is a result. You know what I'm saying? Like your parents, the old saying, do whatever you do. Uh, with enough pride that you'd be willing to sign your name to it. So mm-hmm. whether you're an accountant, whether you're a trim carpenter, whether you're an Olympic gymnast, success is having that mindset that, hey, this is what I'm doing. I'm just going to dominate this. Mm-hmm. And it's cool that they inspired that in you and um, you just took it and, ra- and ran with it. Um, so gymna- back to gymnastics. You mentioned that you made all these sacrifices. You actually made the comment you have to sacrifice so many things I think you said everything to be an Olympic gymnast do you feel like that was actually the case in your situation um no yes and no I don't know how I I don't know how what way to go with that um I was a very very lucky one I was very blessed by my opportunities by my coaches by my parents um I was not the stereotypical elite level Olympic gymnast I was able to go to call or I was able to go to high school Um, All the way through the Olympics, I had parents who could care less if I was in gymnastics. They weren't those stage parents that you stereotypically hear about. I had a coach that supported me and wanted me to be a normal child and took me to Dairy Queen after practice and wasn't, 
you know, pressuring me to be super thin, like the stereotypical gymnast. Shout out Dairy Queen. <laughs> yes. Um, not an ad. <laughs> um, so in that sense, no, I, I didn't have to sacrifice, I mean, even remotely close to what the other Olympic gymnasts had to. But with becoming an elite athlete and becoming an Olympic athlete, you kind of sacrifice a little bit of your sanity. And because I was 16 years old, I think I sacrificed part of my childhood. I wasn't that normal child fully, like, I don't know, like the average 16-year-old kid. Um, I was still training 20, 30 hours a week on top of high school and extracurricular activities. Um, But I had this mindset as a 16-year-old kid that was unlike any average child. I was consumed with perfection and I would lose sleep at night just trying to perfect in my mind what it was I needed to do to get to the Olympics when it kind of became that that job of mine and I think sacrificing your sanity a little bit to become that elite-minded athlete sticks with you for a while as you would know as my husband um and it 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 is a sacrifice that your family goes through, that you go through as a child, and something that you can't ever get back. But I don't know if I would want it back. So, so did any of that make sense? Yeah, no, that was good. Um, I think about gymnastics and how it is such a young sport when you turn professional. When did you turn professional? Uh, I was thirteen. Wow, insane! And so at that point, you give up your your opportunity to go to Stanford on yes. an athletic scholarship. So the way the professional works in gymnastics, it's different than others, is if you accept any money, which is considered pro status, so if you accept you know, donations, any type of help, financial help, you lose, like you said, your, your, your ability status, to yeah. get a scholarship. I, yeah, I think, I think that part, any acceptance of money is kind of similar within sports. Um, but in my career, in my football career, and you're as familiar with it as anybody, I am a, a grown man, and I feel like I could, you know, just because I'm older and I've experienced so many things, you have this capacity to, like, just put up with whatever you need to put up with to achieve your goal. And you're a 14-year-old girl. You're in high school. All your peers are not doing anything similar to what you're doing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, the people you're going to high school with. It just is baffling to me that you're training 20 to 30 hours a week in the gym, and you're on this world stage, and you're able to push through that and achieve your goal without getting distracted. <laughs> it's just – is that just how it goes with gymnastics or you're just, you're just so focused on your routines and, like, the next competition that you're able to, to get through it? Um, so many thoughts on this one. Oh, my gosh. My brain is overwhelmingly exploding at the moment. Um, I think that's, one, just how it goes with children. Hmm. I mean, because if you find any child who loves – something with an undying passion, that's all they want to do. That's where their brain goes. That's what they focus on. That's what they love. That's what they hate. That's like, that's what consumes them. And so as a child, I had this undying passion for gymnastics and I was lucky to have a coach that made it fun. I mean, if you walked into Chow's gymnastics, he had bounce houses that we did conditioning and learn flips inside of. Um, We did slip and slide days. We got to you know, throw parties at the gym. Like, he made it fun for children. And that kind of just made my passion even stronger. So I think as a kid, you you can hyper-focus on things a little bit easier. But also with gymnastics, I think 
one of the reasons you do see the Olympic level athletes being so young is because gymnastics is absolutely terrifying. You're defying gravity. I can, I can attest to that. And with every movement you do within gymnastics, you're fighting the fear in your mind and the just probability in your mind that you could fall and you could hurt yourself so easily and probably pretty bad. And as a child, that fear just doesn't really play a factor. Yes, you get a little bit fearful every once in a while, but a, ch- a child is just naturally not as fearful as an adult. Just because as an adult, you think through things more. And so with gymnastics, you, you see this trend with the older you get, the more you start visualizing and thinking about, well, this could go very wrong instead of this could go very right. And with a child, you see the opposite. So it just kind of makes for a more successful athlete in gymnastics if you're younger. Was there still any day that you walked in the gym you're like, nope, not doing this? <laughs> Are you kidding? Um, all the time. Um, I was also, okay, play to the childhood side. I was also a child that didn't want to do, you know, 500 squats and spend – six hours in the gym every once in a while when my friends were doing something cooler. So I would walk in the gym frustrated, sore, tired, and just think to myself, I just want to be a kid that goes home and lays in bed right now. But, you know, I, again, was very lucky that I had parents who didn't push me. So on those days that I wanted to quit or I didn't want to go, I would tell my parents that. We had a very open relationship that way because I didn't feel pressured. I felt like I could communicate. And my parents would always say, okay, let's, let's not go today. And in an instant, my, my brain would flip and I would be like, what you, you can like, you're going to let me skip, skip class pretty much. And they're like, yeah, if you don't want to do it, you don't need to do it. And I would for some reason kind of rebel against that and be like, no, I'm going. Yeah. There's still a little bit of that. In yeah. You, I, know. A little bit. <laughs> I, know. Uh, I have been amazed at the number of parents who ask you, what they need to do with their kid to get them to be an Olympic athlete. Just address yes. that whole concept for me. Ooh, yes. Um, so when parents approach me and they say, what does my child need to do or what do I need to do to assure that my child will be an Olympian or to make my child an Olympian? And besides just cringing and besides my heart like breaking for that child, and I'll explain why. Um, my first reaction is there is nothing you can do except for make sure they love gymnastics. And within this sport, within every sport, I think in society right now, we're pushing success on our children before we are pushing a passion, which I think is a major, major flaw. So when you see gymnasts or any athlete walk into a gym and they're under the age of 16, your sole role as a parent is to teach them you have to fall in love with it and you can't quit because it's just hard. And I think those two fundamental rules within a sport can give a child everything they need to succeed within a sport. And with these parents that approach me and they say, what do I need to do? What coach do I need to go find? Where do I need to move? How many hours do they need to be training? It's different with every single child. But the one consistent thing you can find between like amongst every athlete that succeeds within their sport is they love it. They have a drive for it. And at the end of the day, 
they work through the hard days and the hard times. And you have to have a parent that supports that. And it's usually, I hate to say it, but it's usually those parents that come to me saying, what can I do for my child to make sure they succeed are the ones that never will. Yeah, because the, as you were talking about, the mental aspect of gymnastics is so huge. So if you're up on the beam and you feel the pressure mm-hmm. from your parents, that's not going to result in anything good. Um, but it is amazing to me. I mean, in Westfield, Indiana, which is not too far from where I grew up, they have they built this grand park, which is hundreds of millions of dollars. And the parents are so focused on the success within the sport that it totally undermines what I think is the best part of sport, which is the success or the the characteristics that can lead to success in other areas of life. Right. Mm -hmm. So just like you said, don't quit because it's hard. That's a lesson that is probably most easily learned in sports because you have the physical aspect and you have like the team aspect and somebody's coaching you and it's just like a great molding experience. That's a lesson that needs to be learned outside of life too. Um, And it's just interesting. This has been said a thousand times, but we're hearing this from you who have, you've benefited so much from the Olympics, right? And that's great. I don't think you would change that. But you've also experienced the transition out of the Olympics, which I want to talk about, but I first kind of want to have you talk about your Olympic experience because that was a kind of a, a jumping point from for everything else. Talk about my Olympic experience. Yeah, summarize it. <laughs> summarize it. That's okay. how I want you. Um, my Olympic experience was nothing and everything I could have dreamed of. Um. It was grander than anything I could have expected. It was more rewarding, more heartbreaking than anything I could have expected. And I say all that because walking into the Olympics, living in the Olympic Village, wearing the red, white, and blue colors, seeing your flag be lowered from, you know, the ceiling and the anthem playing and seeing flags wave in the audience. I mean, it it just gives you goosebumps. It, It fills you with so much pride to represent your country and whether it was the Chinese winning a Chinese medal or an American wearing, uh, winning an American medal, just the pride you feel representing the millions of people watching on TV is pretty spectacular and incredible. Um, heartbreaking because being a 16 year old child, I, I put my worth in my sport, even though my parents raised me not to do that, even though my coach encouraged me to be so much more than just a gymnast, because I was a 16-year-old kid and I hyper-focused my life on gymnastics, when I arrived at the Olympics, I had one goal in mind. It was to win, which is natural for anybody at the Olympics. And I didn't know it then, but I set this expectation almost too high to where when I did receive a silver medal in the all-around, which was kind of like my huge moment, I felt like a failure. And I hadn't I hadn't prepared myself for that scenario and I hadn't prepared myself for those emotions that I had been hiding for so long, kind of proving that I had put all of my worth as a human being in the success of my Olympic performance. And right after that performance, I, you know, kind of had this life, huge life moment and life lesson of I, since I felt like a failure, I didn't know how to kind of come back from that. So I went on to compete during the team competition. We won silver again. I went to compete on the floor competition. I won silver again. And it kind of became this comical thing of, I guess I'm just a failure in life. And as a 16-year-old, that's what I thought. Super depressing. I know. Um, it's also just wrong. but It's so wrong. And I agree with that. I totally agree with that. 
But I then moved on to the very last performance, which was Beam. And I ended up competing. And it wasn't my best performance. Like, I actually remember thinking that. But I did a great job. And when I finished, I saw a number one by my name. So I had won. I went to the medal ceremony. They put the gold medal around my neck. And I remember standing on the podium with a gold medal thinking, like, is this what I thought, I don't know, worth felt like? Like, I had had silver three times in a row and felt like a failure. But then I stood on the top podium and I was like, you know what? It's not much better. It's not much different. And it was like in that instant, I could have cared less what color of metal, what color of ribbon, how I performed, what score I got. Like, from that moment on, I didn't care about anything except how I felt inside. And if I go back and I look at the team competition and I look at the all-around, like, I gave my best performance and I truly felt proud of myself. It was just when... I let someone else kind of tell me and dictate what place they thought I was in the world that I then felt like a failure, which huge life summary from the Olympics was I stood on an Olympic gold medal podium and didn't feel like the best success in the world. And I think that says a lot, but it was a good thing. Like it was a really good thing. It made me very happy. (laughs) It's always, it's okay. You'll get them next time. Or if you just could have done this a little bit better, you could have won. And you always put it in this perspective of winner and loser. So for me at the Olympics, yes, you know, if I were to ask people now, they would say, congratulations. No, you did amazing. However, people's initial reaction at the Olympics was, what could you have done better? What do you regret? What could you have changed? Are you going to come back to redeem yourself? Are you going to come back to avenge your title? Like all these different things that alluded to some sort of you know, shortcoming or failure that I had done and I had been a part of. And I I think the mindset's just completely wrong because in my heart, I knew I had given everything. So instead of people saying, what could you have done different? They should have, they should congratulate those people and say, you gave it your all. Congratulations. I'm so proud of you. Now, let's go play again. Mm -hmm. Instead of, assuming they did something wrong. I don't know. Yeah. So you're 16. You just finished the Olympics. What happens? Um, <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> what happens next? It's this crazy whirlwind of events. Um, what happens next? Uh, it was a crazy whirlwind of events that I can barely even remember. I remember getting on a plane home from China and being redirected in the air <laughs> literally in the air so that this plane that was supposed to be going to Chicago could redirect and land me in New York with an entire plane full of people. So I could be on the Letterman show. I bounced around the, I don't know how that's possible or legal. Um, I bounced around the country doing Ellen DeGeneres and Oprah and Jimmy Kimmel and Jimmy Fallon and, um, uh, Jay Leno, all of them. Um, I then got, put on the gymnastics tour, which is like this performing tour, just like uh, like a Taylor Swift would do. You go to big arenas and you kind of do these Cirque du Soleil slash Dancing with Stars performances from the Olympics. Um, I did that for four months. As soon as that was done, I jumped straight into Dancing with the Stars. I was the youngest contestant to ever be on the show, which was mm-hmm. the craziest thing ever because I was under child labor laws and had to have my mom with me every second of the show 
um, and just kept bouncing around for like at least a good year. Can we talk about the gymna- that first gymnastics tour real quick? Because yeah. it wasn't there's were some tough things that happened. First, there's a video out there that shows you like falling off the floor, right? Which is yeah, I felt completely. <laughs> so the on the tour, the floor is just like you see at the Olympics. It's on top of a podium that's three and a half foot tall, and you have to realize that on tour we were performing every single day. It was right after the Olympics, so we obviously weren't working out, and we were like stuffing our faces with every food that we couldn't eat while competing cake and sugar and grease and fat and butter and just like things that didn't fuel our bodies properly for the olympics but we wanted to kind of take in and live it up at the moment and during one performance i was not at my top shape and i flew straight off the three and a half foot podium (laughs) i can't imagine how painful that'd be you found that yeah i did um, but also you were mentioning the diet that led to pancreatitis, pancreatitis. Yep. Emergency room visit and everything. I went to bed one night in the middle of the tour and I had a stomach ache, but I thought it was just a stomach ache. And it was one of those things where I fell asleep and thought I woke up the next morning, but I had woke up 10 minutes later and the pain had gone from like one to a million I could barely stand up. I couldn't walk and made myself to or got myself to our trainer, our, our doctor's room. And she said, yeah, we got to go to the ER. Wow. So I was in the ER for a week. Eight ice cubes was given. My body had just shut down. I mean, yeah. they can diagnose it as whatever they want. We don't still even know if it was pancreatitis. But I think my body as a 16-year-old kid was just tired. It was unhealthy. It was exhausted. And it just... Stopped working. <laughs> and this is right before Dancing with the Stars? Right before Dancing. So I think, actually, I don't vividly remember watching you in the Olympics, but the first encounter that I, I do remember having was I saw an article talking about um, it was body shaming you. Yep. Cool. Did you get a lot of that? <laughs> Transitioning uh, out of the Olympics? Because you go from, you were, you said 6% body fat. Mm-hmm. You're a 16-year-old girl. You're training this elite-level sport. And then you move from that to being a normal human being. What's that like? So compile all of it. Um, I was 16 years old, 6% body fat. I trained at the Olympics about 40 hours a week. You know, if you take any person, any person in the world, and you just stop training 40 hours, your body will naturally put on a few pounds you shouldn't be six percent body fat no girl should and so my my body was naturally healing itself but on top of that I was pre-pubescent when I was at the Olympics and on Dancing with the Stars after the Olympics I had already put on a few pounds naturally in a healthy way well maybe not healthy because I was eating a lot of very unhealthy food um so I expedited that process um but I also went through puberty on a public stage in front of the world and when the world kind of has this image of you as this elite level athlete, they don't see you as a 16-year-old kid. They see you as an adult that represents the country, that, you know, can operate as an adult. And when I go through all these things and I look different than I did at the Olympics, people did body shame me in hardcore. I was on the cover of newspapers and magazines and it was like then and now when 
all these terrible articles and terrible things people were saying, saying I was fat and obese and that I had gotten derailed and I was losing my mind and all these different things when in reality I was just a 16-year-old kid going through puberty. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I think I remember the article saying – Sean Johnson gains 25 pounds, and it was like yeah. then and now. And, I was and like, then, and then it became so, a huge story when I lost the 25 pounds. Yeah, <laughs> which is – there's so many other more important things to talk about, you figure. Yeah. Uh, but you're you're so right in saying people, people expect you to operate like an adult. But even the adults who go through elite-level sports have a hard time maturing and being – like you look at Ryan Lochte, and there is something – to be said about sacrificing everything towards this one goal. And I've experienced this, but fortunately I've had so many mentors in my life that have kind of been a crutch for me to, to mature through it. Uh, but you know, it's, it's taken me two years too from college football to mm-hmm. dealing with, you know, my, my football career. Um, but you just, when, when you're all in on sport, it's like, it's such a selfish you're you're worried about going into the gym every day and training what you need to train that other things in life get put on the back burner, right? Um, and this is why, I mean, you're on the board of Hope Sports, which is like a charity we're really involved in, which is the whole mission is, you know, talking, trying to use sport in an appropriate way. And uh, they build this, the, we've done a couple of those house builds down in Tijuana, which I think have been good. Um, but you're going through gaining, you know, going through puberty, you gain this weight after Mm -hmm. the Olympics and you're transitioning out of your sport. It's like everything bad that could have happened, (laughs) everything good that happens obviously gets grouped in like to the Olympics and it's great. And even though you didn't walk away with as many gold medals as you'd like, it was still like a peak experience in life. And then it transitions. I'm, I I really think that life goes like this. Mm -hmm. And so you hit a pretty tough time in life, but dancing with the stars was a pretty great experience for you i think overall it was it was a great experience i i felt like dancing was the first thing i'd ever done like since the olympics and probably since i was like 13 and started to get like consumed with the perfectionism side of gymnastics um but dancing was the first thing that i did that proved to me i could truly do something and be something outside of gymnastics if i worked hard for it and you know there were the haters on dancing, I had to deal with a stalker on dancing. Like it was again a roller coaster of things, but it was a great experience and I gained a family that loved me for who I was and didn't shame me for the twenty pounds that I'd put on since the Olympics and it was just a, it was a great atmosphere to be in. But what so was your first ex, like real big experience outside of gymnastics? You went back to gymnastics. Mm-hmm. Why? Um, probably for all the wrong reasons. Um, right after Dancing with the Stars, about six months later, it was January of 2010. Um, I went skiing for my 18th birthday. I took a really bad fall. I tore everything in my knee. It was the first big injury I'd ever had in my life. Um, had reconstructive knee surgery and remember thinking to myself in that moment, like, I want to go back to gymnastics. Like, what if I could never do gymnastics again because Mm. of this one you know, one thing. And it was kind of this motivation for me to get my knee healthy again. But what I probably haven't told anyone was one of the biggest factors of going back to gymnastics was trying to kind of 
mute all of the haters. I wanted my body back in a place where people actually respected me and didn't talk negatively about me, which is such a wrong motivation and really sad that an 18-year-old kid has to feel that. But gymnastics just seemed like the answer to me. It seemed like it would make it all better. It didn't. <laughs> yeah. But. Um, it was actually very more difficult the second time around but i mean it's interesting because you you've told me about that whole second go around but i've never actually heard you say when you tore your knee it was like what if i you said what if i could never do gymnastics again which is a hint at the the love that you truly do have for the sport but the second time around you had experience and been exposed to all the impurities of the sport the business side of it Mm -hmm. and was that ultimately what weighed you down and um there were a lot of things that kind of weighed me down the second time around which caused me to officially retire from gymnastics and not go back but um it was just a very corrupt system which we've kind of seen a lot of it come to light these days and as a then 19 year old who was considered old within the sport coming back from an injury I was this you know, I don't know, just, how do I say that? Kind of like broken wannabe of an old 16-year-old self that they just did not respect. And um, I had a lot of very unhealthy things going on outside of my life, unhealthy relationship. Uh, I had, you know, people in my life that were pushing me towards money instead of happiness. I had just kind of a bad team and my parents and I kind of struggled through that time as well because they saw how I was so misguided that they didn't really know how to how to help me or rein me back in and it was just a lot of things but ultimately it came down to I had one interaction with a coach not chow um but a coach a, a dignitary pretty much of our team and I remember them telling me that, you know, I would never make it. I would never be healthy enough. I would never train hard enough and be thin enough and be able to make it within this system as a 19-year-old kind of returning athlete. And this is right after I had just made it back to my first ever world championship um, since 2008. And I just remember thinking in that moment, I said, you know what? My sanity, my health, my pride, my confidence, I finally got it back and I felt good with like about myself and I was like, I'm not going to let you take it from me. So wow. I was like, I'm done. Props to you. Peace out. Seriously. <laughs> um, and then you go back to Dancing with the Stars after that. So the day that I set, like sent out a press release saying, I am done, I'm not going to do this anymore, Dancing with the Stars called... My family, my home away from home, and they said, well, this is convenient since you can't go to the Olympics, will you come be on the show for an all-star season? I was like, absolutely. Can't wait. And you came in second. Came in second again. Yeah. Yeah, But another derivative effect of you not going to the Olympics was you meeting me. Is that right? In a roundabout way, Yes. If I had made the Olympics, I would have been in the athlete village. I would not have been anywhere that would have let me meet your older brother. Um, I actually went to an event, a cycling event, 
and ran into this guy named Guy who was a USA cyclist and we just got to talking and he was amazing and he just kept saying, I, I think you really should meet my younger brother. And I was like, okay, whatever. And just so happened that when we flew back to the United States and I was on Dancing with the Stars, he and his younger brother, who is Andrew, you, um, flew out to Dancing with the Stars and met me. And I was like, this guy's pretty cool. Yeah, we had one night. It was our first date. And I thought that I was, I thought that I was the funniest guy out there. I thought that I was just like super smooth. Even though I like the circle Sean ran in versus the circle I ran in in college was just complete. Like you're just you're in L.A. living the Hollywood life, and I'm in college wearing like drug rugs and had dreads and the <laughs> yeah. whole thing. Uh, but yeah. we had that one night, and I guess I left enough of an impression. You did, but you so guy actually had the confidence to approach you because there the second interaction that I had with you from afar after that first article that I read was an article that came out saying that <laughs> you were interested in going to school at Vanderbilt. Yes. And I will never forget, there's Chase Garnum with my roommate. He's a football player. He made the whole locker room just, like, go crazy because <laughs> he was like, she's coming to Vanderbilt and I'm going to date her. That's and so amazing. so then I remember Guy mentioned he read that article and so he saw you and, and said, hey, maybe, maybe my brother could take you on a tour, Vandy. And I was like, okay, maybe. It took a year, though, because after <laughs> – after we've met you in LA, you just stone stonewalled me for nine months. Yeah, um, I was but. in a crazy time of my life. It was right after the retirement. It was right after Dancing with Stars. I was getting out of a relationship. There was just a ton of things going on. But I, I do remember when I met you. Besides thinking you were the biggest dork in the whole world, no, there was this. I was the smoothest guy out. Sincerity about you and just. I don't know. You were, I mean, remember, I was surrounded by Hollywood, like you said, and the Olympics and managers and agents and money hungry and money driven and success hungry and success driven people that had Say, all the wrong intentions. Saying I'm not. <laughs> well, I hope not. Uh, and then I met you and it was so too good to be true. I mean, I remember you praying before dinner, which nobody in L.A. does. And I remember you being such a gentleman and asking me personal questions about myself and not about gymnastics, which is what the world wanted to know. Nobody cared about who I was. They wanted to know who the gymnast was. And you just had this sincerity to you that was so redeeming and so charming. And I was like, this is so too good to be true. He has to have a hidden agenda. And you didn't. Not to get too sappy on the podcast. But, yeah. But yeah. that first date that we went on, your smile was the sunshine of my life. I saw that and I was like, if I could be around that every single day, yeah, that'd be a good life. Do I smile every day of your life? That would start. Okay, so then you moved to yeah. Nashville. Yes. Because of me. Yes. Right. I mean, there's a whole story behind that where I, Sean was, I took her on a second date, which was a CMA fest in Nashville. She came, we had an amazing week. And from that point forward, I was like, this is the girl I'm going to, I'm going to pursue. And, um, you decided to move to Nashville. I did. But I wrote her a letter. I was like, Hey, don't think that 
I'm gonna be spending a lot of time with you because I'm in college. I have football to play. I have. Like, he was very I've, smooth with his moves, guys. Obviously, <laughs> yeah, I, I made a lot of mistakes, and I, I got really I mad. How... And I sent an email back, and I was like, "Don't you think for a second I'm moving here because of you?" <laughs> yeah. Which I was. I totally yeah. was. But it's crazy because you moved to Nashville, and really, it was. I mean, I think about God's timing, and it's such an amazing. Not to toot our own horn, but it's an amazing story of. You were about to go to the Olympics, but you didn't, and that's ultimately the reason that we met. Mm-hmm. You moved to Nashville during a time in your life where you weren't doing much work, right? Like mm-hmm. typically, you're, and I realized this two years into dating, you're on the road all the time, you're taking calls, you're doing interviews, you're like barely in one place for a week. You took like, I took a, like a two year hiatus, right? And yeah. granted, you had um, you had the body department that mm-hmm. you had co founded which was a good thing, but you had operators in it that kind of let you be hands off, Mm -hmm. which is amazing. You're 22 at this time. The first work thing that you had was going on the celebrity apprentice, which (laughs) kind of give us a brief summary of that, if you will. Um, the celebrity apprentice, I always compare it to dancing with the stars. It's just like that reality competition driven show. And Dancing with the Stars, I loved. I loved the producers. I loved the way they ran the competition. I loved that it was a friendly atmosphere, a family atmosphere. Now, with Apprentice, it was a little bit harder because being an athlete, you learn to respect your opponents. You learn to respect hard work. You learn to expect great competition. And you're not going to do anything slimy or, you know, with malintent, hopefully. Um, you shouldn't as athletes, but on The Apprentice, it was all about being conniving. It was all about figuring out a way to get ahead of a, someone else by cheating the system. And I just could not function in that kind of atmosphere. I, I could not be conniving. I could not cheat the system or throw someone under the bus just to get myself ahead. And I think you see that a lot with the athletes that go in that show. You just, they don't succeed. <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely a different environment. It was actually Donald Trump's last Celebrity Apprentice season, right? It was. Which ultimately led, this is a story in and of itself, he called you on a weekly <laughs> basis. I'll never forget. And then almost a daily basis, yeah. This was 2015 when he was just about to announce his uh, presidential run because yeah. he wanted your support in the Iowa caucus. Well, so I actually remember. She would literally screen his calls. I actually remember going on that show. And this is, like, before he had ever announced that he was going to run. I think it was a year before he announced anything. And he would pull me aside, and he was very nice on the show. He was very cordial, seeing him interact with his family and his grandchildren. It was He was very nice. Um, but he was almost too nice to me at times. The way he would fire me in the boardroom, the way he would, like, fire. almost, like, defend <laughs> me in the boardroom and defend me with other people. But it always came back to Iowa. Yeah. It was always... He would always ask me about Iowa, and I, I kind of started getting this inkling. I was He was worried that I didn't own enough land and that I wasn't involved enough in Iowa anymore. And I remember calling my mom one day, and I think I called you too, and I was like, he's going to run for presidency. Yeah. So, it's so he was actually – they had casted the entire show full, and he actually opened up another position just to have me on it. And I remember thinking, like, at then, I was like, There's too much. It just doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And then fast forward, he's now running. He got my cell phone number and he would call me on a weekly and then became daily basis. And he would be like, I really, and he would like laugh. He would say, um, did you see the, 
the debate last night, I really didn't think I was going to win. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is not good. (laughs) And he would say, you know, I see your your fiancé is trying out for the Kansas City Chiefs. Do you want me to write the owner a letter to make sure he gets on the team? And he was always just trying to campaign for me to to publicly endorse him because I was from Iowa. And – you know, all parties aside, I don't care who I am for or not. I I represent such a young demographic that I cannot be political, be outwardly political for my job. Right. I just can't. And I just kept telling him that. And he was very – he persevered, man. <laughs> yeah. Your experience on The Prince was so stressful that you took, like, this epic Bali trip. Yes. Right? Yes. Did that help you decompress? It did. Oh, my gosh. I was actually on the show planning this trip, and I had never gone on a vacation by myself away from work for an extended period of time. And, I mean, I was only 21, 20, 21 years old, maybe? I think, yeah, 22, maybe. And I booked this trip to Bali, Indonesia, for three weeks by myself and flew out, like, the day after The Apprentice and was there, and it was the greatest most beautiful amazing experience of my life this resort that i stayed in was very exclusive and it seemed like everyone there was a young um entrepreneur 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 female it was incredible i met a lot of great friends there actually your first blog post on seanjohnson.com which is a growing thing in your life was about was probably the funniest story of (laughs) bali where you take this bike ride to the volcano you have to read the article um, but it's great. Uh, oh, my gosh. Yeah, there's a lot of good stories. He said it was a casual so, bike ride, and it was like hiking Everest. So after after your kind of reality TV experience, and you were on a bunch of shows, Whose Line Is It Anyway? We were on Cupcake Wars, all this. Um, 2015, you started a YouTube channel. You want to talk yeah. about the origins of that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you started a YouTube channel that I didn't know about. And it was titled Sean Johnson. And I was like, what is this thing? Titled Sean Johnson Official. (laughs) Official. Um, But you kind of ventured into YouTube. It was something that you had been reading about outside of football. And we had a friend of ours, Mallory Irvin, who had started a YouTube channel. We'd kind of gone to some meetings with her to kind of help her go through, like, the legal process of it and finding management. And it was this fascinating world that we didn't understand. But it was this new entity of a career that people were kind of catching on to and you started it (laughs) i was very opposed at the beginning just because i had made a career and a very sustainable career out of the olympics and my brand and i i didn't i couldn't see at the time getting rid of that and becoming a youtuber um but you convinced me you kept persevering through that and we kind of grew this youtube channel into a successful business now and i mean you want me to talk about my channel, but it's essentially your channel and our channel, and it's incredible what you've made of it. So to give you the full background on the YouTube channel, I signed with the Chiefs coming out of college. Then I got cut, and I was sitting on the couch for three months just depressed. Didn't know what I was going to do, and I'd been reading about YouTube. I told You remember when I told you I was going to be an Uber driver? Uh-huh. Yeah. Which, oh which I still kind of want to do. No. Um, but I was like, you know what? This could be a good use of my time is just making videos and i i've made a couple videos with my friends growing up and it was like road trip videos love doing it so i was like that my love for doing it combined with my perception that 
literally the more the world can see of you, the more smile that they can see of yours, like the better off the world would be. I, I mean, I could be biased. I'm, I don't think I am, but uh, I was like, let's just start making videos and connect with your fans in a new way too. So we started off literally had no idea what we were doing, but we reached out to a bunch of different people and we were able to get some awesome collabs. Um, and also that was the time when we were planning our wedding. Yep. And so I thought it would be a cool way to document that, which I think it was ultimately. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I would, I would do so many different things, but <laughs> it started with the YouTube thing, which grew into then all different social platforms for you, right? Mm-hmm. And you. For ultimately me, yeah. But you mentioned the difference of you had this like in Hollywood, your name honestly carries a lot of weight. And you're kind of this dignified star out there. The difference between that and how YouTubers or digital media stars, was that hard for you to digest? Um, No, it wasn't hard for me to like to digest. It was hard for me to wrap my head around. We've had this conversation. I had worked really hard for a lot of years to build that brand out in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. It was my bread and butter. It's what paid my bills. It's what supported my family. It's what gave me confidence to, to continue doing what I did. And coming into YouTube when, you know, it was almost this risk of like, I'm going to have to give that up to start a new career and to kind of transition and potentially give up a name and potentially give up a brand that I've built. It was terrifying. Just because I knew how hard I had worked for what I had built. and But I also really wanted to do it because I wanted to build something together. And I wanted to have something that was ours and not mine. And ultimately, I mean, one of my biggest goals with it was I saw YouTube as something better than Hollywood. I mean, we've also had that conversation within Hollywood and within sports entertainment, which is what it was the world that I was kind of classified under after the Olympics. It's very, very, very controlling. If you partner with any brand, they tell you what you can and cannot wear, how you can do your hair and makeup, what you can say, what you can't say, how you have to present yourself on a daily basis. Um, I mean, sometimes even like where you where you live and how you talk. I mean, it's it's all these different things. And it was very exhausting because I could never just be me. And with YouTube, I would watch these YouTube videos of, Girls with no makeup and a messy bun, obviously, um, in pajamas. And they would just say things that were true thoughts and opinions that I have never been able to say and act certain ways that I've never been able, been able to act. And they are able to show that they were sad or mad or angry. And I wanted that so bad. I wanted to just be me and not have someone control it anymore. So I took a leap of faith with you. And I was like... I will give it up, and let's try it. And it worked. I appreciate the trust. It is amazing as I'm sitting here trying to view our relationship from like an outsider's perspective because mm-hmm. this is just the, the setting <laughs> of the interview. First of all, how patient you've been with me. Second of all, how honestly we work pretty well together, which is – We work great together. Which is fortunate. And we have well, – there is a lot of – um. We have a lot of discussions, heated discussions maybe about <laughs> a lot of arguments. you're so used to having a full hair and makeup crew before you go out to your Dancing with the Stars dance and then a YouTube video, at least for our goals, which yeah. was to show 
the world, this authentic woman. And like, you stand for so many amazing things, like, you know, just what it means to be a confident woman, a vulnerable woman. And we've shared some pretty vulnerable things, but it's not been easy for you. It's been, and that's something honestly that I've downplayed and haven't been able to fully appreciate is the difficulty that you have, especially with all the background articles of body shame and whatever you have had this ability to shape your, your perspective and, and how people view you, your persona and to, to loosen that and share more of the world. And this just goes for anybody, whether on YouTube or not, it's very difficult. It's very uncomfortable and you've done it very well. So props to you. you. Well, props to you because you had a huge hand in that as well. So it's turned into, though, now beyond just the YouTube channel, beyond the other social media platforms, you have you were part of Adventure Capitalist, which was a, a pretty fun experience for you. It Can was you amazing. Talk about that. Yeah. Uh, Adventure Capitalist, or AC2, uh, was kind of a spinoff of Shark Tank. So it's the same exact show Shark Tank. You have four investors and um, entrepreneurs coming in and pitching a product to you, but I, as an investor with three other guys, we would sit in the great outdoors of Banff, Canada, Moab, Utah, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and we'd be like on the beach or in the mountains and this entrepreneur would walk up in the great outdoors. They would pitch us a product that had to do with the great outdoors. We would then go try their product, whether it was skis or um, snowmobiling or um, some type of scuba gear. It was all these really cool adventurous um products we would go test it out try it out come back and then negotiate a deal and it was amazing and so much fun i wish i could do it again and they a big part of that was just like your digital suave or your digital capacity um to market on on digital media so that's been cool but it's also we're sitting here it's turned into a second brand of yours beyond yes. the body department follow your truth yes can you talk about the mission behind that yeah follow your truth uh fyt fit whatever you want to call it it was kind of similar to the body department but i wanted to take it a step further i wanted to kind of focus or hyper focus on the health and fitness side where we put out kind of fitness dvds and programs potentially nutrition programs later on that are for the average, everyday, normal person. They're not intimidating. They're not perfect. They're not, I mean, you don't have like fitness models doing the workouts and they're not even breathing hard and they look just perfect. You have like me and a friend of mine laughing, giggling, falling on our face, trying to get through these normal workouts that anyone could do that kind of take someone through a health journey. And Along with that, we have some like fitness gear, clothes, and accessories that sell with it, and just trying to build a community of people who truly are in it for the right reasons and are supported for the right reasons and not supported to lose that extra 20 pounds. Yeah. Honestly, it's been so cool. You've, you've put in so much hard work on this, and actually, we just did a YouTube video on you walking through the initial launch of products. Yes. I would recommend checking it out. Um, also, check out the website at fitlife.com, yes. F-Y-T, life. Um, so that's really, really cool. And it's amazing to see what you've built. You have now have several companies that have been successful, multi-million dollar brands, and it's it's really cool. I want to know what a day in the life of Sean Johnson looks like. You know what that looks like. <laughs> <laughs> it's not attractive. Um, I feel like our lives are very, like, 
hot and cold in the sense of if work is on and if we're traveling and if we have like a job we have to go take care of, we are up at 4 a.m. catching flights, landing, going straight into interviews and events and appearances. We're going for a week or so or more. We come home and then we crash and then we'll wake up at 10 a.m. and we'll do some work on the computer for five, six hours and then we'll work out and go back to the couch. Yeah. So it's a little all over the all over the board, but we, we travel a lot, like a lot, a lot. <laughs> yeah. Actually, your flexibility in schedule is amazing and I think it's important. Um, it's also been a huge factor that has made us work, I think, because I've been on five different NFL teams now, different cities, and your your ability to be flexible is a huge reason why we don't have more attention in our relationship. <laughs> I'm not sure there's another girl out there who could deal with that instability in the same capacity you can. Um, and so that goes for work, that goes for marriage. It's, it's really, really cool. Are you ready for some fan questions? Yeah. Um, I love you. And then, <laughs> you're so cute. I love you too. I hope this interview has been. You're a really good interviewer. Thank you. I was nervous. Really? Yeah. That I wasn't going to be good? No, I just, <laughs> not that you weren't going to be good, but like that I would be like, oh, like think wow. about, no, baby, think about this. Think about how many times I've been interviewed in my life with good interviewees. Yeah, I mean, by subpar. By David Letterman. Yeah. And you were great thank you baby I'm, i've been practicing i hope that people can can tell that this was a unique interview by the way because it is my wife and nash is roaming around so <laughs> okay we have a lot a lot of questions here and i'm in my pajamas uh, yeah. and i might have a cold okay we're just going to start off with a super easy one okay. rain down upon ass what is the best quality andrew has best quality <laughs> he is, how did i say this the other day someone asked me that he is unapologetically just himself in every aspect of life. He will take on any venture that would intimidate normally the entire world. He will, he loves me for me. He's such a goofball and such a nerd and, but he's just unapologetically himself and it's the most amazing quality I've ever seen. Thanks baby. I love you. Okay, hey boys, ask of all your accomplishments, which is the one you're most proud of? Besides marrying you, <laughs> does that count? That is an accomplishment. Um, I would say. So I deferred college for seven years. I had gotten into Stanford. I had gotten into Harvard. I had applied to Oxford and got into all of them, which was incredible, and I was so proud of. But when I deferred seven years, I didn't think I would be able to get back into college. And I was really, really self-conscious about it. And I remember applying to Vanderbilt and all but crying the day that that acceptance letter got in. It was like... That was huge. It was really special. That was a big moment. Um, but then I didn't go there. <laughs> yeah. Another, a story for another day. Yeah. Dancing for Dios uh, wants to know if you think spiders have feelings. <laughs> Don't laugh. Okay. Yes, I do. Oh I think gosh. all living creatures have feelings. Okay. Um, and even when I kill them, I feel bad. And I say, I'm sorry, but you intruded into my home. Kinsey Cummings wants to know, are you going to put your kids in gymnastics? <sighs> um, 
I think gymnastics teach teaches kids great coordination. Life lessons is great for young children. I don't know if I would encourage them or I will always encourage them in whatever they want to do, but I will encourage them to try every sport. I hope they don't choose gymnastics. <laughs> you hope they don't. Yeah. I kind of feel that way about football too. I know. I think they, it's just because we went through it. They've been, they'll be okay regardless. They'll be great. Uh, how long have you been a Christian? Ask Avery Ann. I have been a Christian my whole life, raised by God-fearing Christians, um, but kind of got closer with God and in my faith around the Olympics, just when I started getting more curious and asking why. Yeah. 2012-ish, right? 2008, originally, but then 2012 again. Uh, I should know that. Um, Ash Gray wants to know, how do you deal with your insecurities? How do I deal with my insecurities? Um, my husband, honestly. We have very, very open communication. Even though he doesn't want to hear it sometimes, I tell him every one of my insecurities and what triggers them and what makes them hard and easy to deal with. And truly, him supporting me and loving me through all of them is what gets me through. No pressure. Last one. Chelsea Lynn Fields wants to know what your favorite thing about living in Nashville is. Favorite thing about living in Nashville? I think we just have a great community of friends out here, and I love the pace of life out here. I love that there is, like, still, um, like, southern traditions and morals, but also it's kind of upbeat and fast-paced, a little bit like L.A. Yeah. You ready for the for the closing questions yes. here? Yes. Hit me. Okay, so you've accomplished so much, honestly. Yes. Four Olympic medals. Built two companies exited from one you have this social media empire some say you've won dancing with the stars all this stuff what is what is it that you would say your goals are now my goals are my goals now are to continue in business with the right intentions which is to get across a message or to help other people out um, in a positive way to change the world as you might. Um, and my other goals are also to have a family, which we talked about. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> um, I think that's the greatest accomplishment of all. Um, so yeah, have family. That's great. What, what do you think has made you been, what secret sauce do you feel like you've had? that's helped you reach all of the success do you feel do you attribute to one thing or another uh i would attribute it to two different three different things um my faith keeps me grounded in everything and kind of keeps me on the right path with the right mission in mind um my team I was going to separate that into two, but my team being you, my parents, just the people around me. So back in the Olympics, having my parents remind me on a daily basis of what was actually important and what the actual mission was and um, what the important things in life were. That kind of just reminded me that at the end of the day, you know, winning a gold medal isn't everything and that there's bigger things to life. And also just my passion for whatever it is that I take on. I, I truly feel like we all have God-given talents and purposes and 
in different areas of life. And it's our mission to find them and kind of go after them. So that's good because I always ask about the team that people have that have helped them reach their success. Um, before I ask you the closing three tips for life advice, for, gymna- for gymnasts out there who are transitioning out of their sport, whether in college or just dropped out of their club team, do you have any piece of advice for them that you've learned through? It, it was a couple-year transition for you to mm-hmm. be able to move past gymnastics. Yes. Any advice? Um, I always say transitioning out of gymnastics or any type of sport is like a bad breakup. It's going to leave a hole that is very empty and very big and feels really hard to fill. But I would say try everything. Don't hold your standard to whatever level it was you were in your sport or in gymnastics. For me, I held myself back from really moving on and transitioning into something else because I thought unless I was as good at the next thing as I was at gymnastics, I I couldn't approach it and I couldn't try it. So just start over. Try anything and everything you can. Hobbies, extracurricular activities, sports, jobs. Just try it all until you find another passion that fills that void of gymnastics or whatever sport it is. Wise words. I feel like I've needed to to hear that and (laughs) you've helped me with that. Okay. I always close with... Um, asking the interviewee yeah. a three piece of advice you'd give our audience of things you've learned throughout your life. Um, you told me to prepare for this, but I think it's hard to prepare. Uh, I would say one is fall in love with something. It doesn't. I'm not talking about a person. I'm talking about just fall in love with a passion. Fall in love with, like I said, a hobby, an extracurricular activity, a sport, a job a mission, just have an interest, an undying interest in something. And as soon as that interest goes away, find another one. I think it gives us kind of a purpose in life and it it kind of guides us in life. Uh, Two, dream big. Sounds so cliche and cheesy, but don't hold yourself by, don't hold yourself back by not dreaming big enough. Um, I was always told that whatever you believe, or whatever you don't believe, it's always going to be true. So if you dream yourself achieving an Olympic medal or you dream yourself walking down the stairs, they're both attainable. It's just It just matters of, how do I say that? It just depends on where you set your sights and what your body and your mind works towards. And three, um, I don't know, man. Three would be always have fun. I was just thinking back to all the advice that I give kids when they ask me what they need to do to get to the next level or achieve their dream. And besides the passion side of it, you always have to have fun. You're never too old to have fun. I love those. I think you've embodied each of those well. And after sitting here talking to you for an hour and 15 minutes, I'm more convinced now than ever that I'm the luckiest guy in the world to yeah. be able to spend my, I'm not kidding. I'm the luckiest woman in the world. I'm going to spend my entire life with you, and you're such an amazing woman. Can't wait very to grow rarely, old and wrinkly with you, baby. Very rarely do we get to sit here and just talk about you, because I'm usually the Gabby one. So I also just realized you're the first female that's been uh, a female episode, so congrats, Girl power. congratulations. But I appreciate you taking the time, You have to time, clear baby. any woman you, come, you bring into the <laughs> okay. okay? Thanks for doing this, baby. <laughs> Thank you. Love you. Love you.
Hey guys, it's Andrew, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Redirected. If you find this podcast valuable, there are a lot of ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever platform you happen to listen from. You can share it with your friends on social media, blogs, or on your own podcast. Also, head over to andrewdes.com for more information and to request your favorite celebrity, entrepreneur, athlete, or anyone else who inspires you. And while you're at my site, be sure to sign up for my newsletter so you can get updates on other fun stuff going on. Also, you guys know I love connecting with you, so if you want to reach out to me directly on Instagram or Twitter, my handle is at andrewdeast. Thanks again, and we hope to see you next time on Redirected. Oh, 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 oh,